Unfortunately, this is going to confuse so many people who listen to that radio program, The Bible Answer Man, who look at Hank Hanegraaff as evangelical Christianity's apologist, if you will, against the cults. I want to share with you a little bit about what Eastern Orthodox faith teaches, just so you understand why this is such a big deal and why this makes me very sad. The Eastern Orthodox Church believes that ultimately the church is supreme in everything. As a matter of fact, they teach and believe that there was no formal corpus of scripture, no formal Bible, until they decided what they wanted to teach from. And they put it together so that they declared it to be scriptural. Only the church can interpret scripture. It is not for the laity to understand unless the church tells them what to believe. The Bible gets its authority from the church. That is exactly the opposite of what we believe. The only authority I have is because of what God's word says. I have no authority. We as a church have no authority outside of the Bible. They hold to the same seven sacraments that the Roman Catholic Church holds to. They have no objective, clear, and formally definable criteria for truth. And that's shocking to me. Instead, they refer to an internal norm for determining authority, and they ascribe that to the Spirit, the work of the Spirit of God, within the church, not the individual. While they will deny worshiping Mary, they do venerate her to the highest degree possible as Theotokos, Mother of God. They hold to the perpetual virginity of Mary. They hold to her assumption as opposed to her death. But they don't go as far as the Roman Catholic Church to make it dogma or normative teaching within the church. The the Orthodox Church uses icons. These are pictures, images, or other objects that are declared to be sacred by the church as a source of revelation equal to that of Scripture. As to salvation, mankind did not inherit guilt through Adam, but instead man inherited death, mortality, and corruption. Man did not fall from perfect fellowship with God, but departed from the path for attaining perfect fellowship. In other words, they just took a detour. The Orthodox Church views Christ's death on the cross And God's grace as the means to enable man to become God. Now, hold on a second. Let me finish. To obtain what they call theosis, deification or divinization. To be deified is to become a partaker of the divine nature. But you are not changed necessarily into a divine being. This is more the opportunity for that fellowship with God to be restored. They believe that the reformers were absolutely wrong in everything that they did to reform the church. They were wrong in their understanding of Scripture. They were wrong in in their understanding of salvation, of grace, and of faith. Last week, we talked about the battle. We talked about how real this battle is and that we need to be strengthened with the strength that God provides. We need to take up the full armor of God. We need to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We talked about some of those schemes. Hank Hanegraaff, I think, forgot. Because this is something that's been going on, I understand now, for over two to three years. And yet, he would say that nothing has changed. That he doesn't has not changed any of his core beliefs and and understanding of biblical Christianity. Beloved, when he says that, that means everything that he's ever written, everything that he's ever said, everything that he has ever put forth as a defense of the faith is now suspect. You can't trust it. 
I have books on my shelf that I have to move from my apologetics section to my read with discernment section. Books that I thought I could trust to books that now I have to, maybe if I ever reread them, I have to really think about what it is that he's actually saying. We spent some time looking last week at the admonition to stand firm. We looked at this usage of Paul, of, of this word histemi that Paul used in verse 11 and verse 13, to stand ready, to stand against, or to be steadfast. Today I'd like to finish. I'd like to finish this passage and look at the other two resources that God has given us as we engage in spiritual warfare so that we will stand firm in the battle. Two more resources that God has given us. We've already read this text, but I I want to read it again. Because I think that we need to hear God's word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Father, we love you. And we thank you for giving us the strength that we need to fight the battle. We thank you for giving us the resources to engage in that battle. The full armor that you have provided. Help us to use it. And to use it well. And that you would help us to understand exactly what it is that we're engaging in this battle. And how we need to fight. Open up the eyes of our heart, Lord, that we might see you in this passage. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. Last week I told you there were three points from this passage. Last week we looked at point number one, the strength to stand firm. And we spent a lot of time looking at that strength that God provides for us to be strengthened. Today I want to look at the other two points. The armor to stand firm and then prayer to stand firm. The armor to stand firm and prayer to stand firm. Paul starts this section with the fourth use of that Greek term, to stand, and here he is really making a concerted effort to help us to understand to take your stand once and for all. This is the chief admonition of the passage. This is where Paul climaxes. This is the pinnacle, the peak of this passage. In light of the battle imagery used throughout this section, it points to the stance of a soldier in combat who resolutely opposes the enemy. So let's look at this armor piece by piece. Paul spends the next four verses describing this armor. I don't want to go into some uh, mystical, metaphorical uh, usage and trying to find the deeper meaning within all of these pieces of armor like so many other pastors have done and, and even pastors that I've read their sermons. They pull things out of here that I just, I find are not there, just not there. But I do want to talk about each piece, because each piece is important. And the order in which they're used is also important. Each of these first three pieces of armor is described as having been applied before the standing firm takes place. You see that in the Greek. In the Greek tense and how they organize it and how Paul uses the Greek verbs, he is indicating that this has all been done before You even took your stand. 
having girded, having put on, having shod, all of these things occur before our ability to stand firm. And all of these things give the ability of the believer to stand firm. So, what is that first piece? That first piece of armor is the belt of truth. Having girded your loins with truth. What do we use a belt for? Well, today we use a belt to hold up our pants, right? Back then, they didn't wear pants, but they did have a tunic. And if you think about what a tunic does, a tunic, is, it kind of flows. It kind of it gets in the way at times. If you're running, it can kind of trip you up. So one of the things that the soldier wanted to do is put a belt on so that he could gird up his loins and literally pull the tunic up and over and tuck it into the belt. The belt is necessarily the first piece of armor because there are so many other things that connect to it and that are supported by it. This is the belt of truth. Pontius Pilate famously asked Jesus, what is truth? Truth here is objective. It is true truth. It is God's truth. It is truth which we stand on. It is the truth of the gospel. It is the truth that Jesus is who he says he is. John 14, 6. You know this verse. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is only one way to see God. There is only one way to enjoy fellowship with God, and that is through the truth of Jesus Christ. Paul in Romans 13, verses 11 to 14, says this. Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. I think Paul was thinking back to this passage when he wrote this to the church in Rome. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Put on Christ. As Paul, as, I'm sorry, as Jesus preached and Jesus prayed at the end of his life to his Father, sanctify them, sanctify the apostles, sanctify these that I have chosen, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We need to be girded with truth because we have so many other things that are supported by it, that hinge upon it that hang on it. We walk in truth as he is in the truth. John, writing towards the end of his life, his third letter, says this, I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Beloved, we need to walk in the truth We need to gird ourselves with truth. We need to stand in truth. Everything hinges on the truth of Scripture, of the truth that comes in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Martin Luther famously said during the Reformation, peace at all costs. I'm sorry, peace if possible. Truth at all costs. Peace if possible. Truth at all costs. There is nothing more important than truth. And that's why Paul puts it first in this passage as the first piece of armor that you must put on. Secondly, the breastplate of righteousness. This probably refers to a coat of mail almost like ringlets linked together or little plates of metal linked together with rings that would cover, that the soldier would put on over his tunic. He would wear it over and it would cinch into and connect to the belt so that it wouldn't rattle around in battle. This breastplate of righteousness consisted of two parts, one covering the front, the other one covering the back. 
it provided protection to the entire body. How do we understand this breastplate of righteousness? What is this? Is this imputed righteousness? Is this breastplate of righteousness placed upon us? Or is it imparted, is it given to us that we must take it and put it on? Well, things that are imputed are also imparted. You can't really differentiate the two. But because of how Paul uses this verb, this is something that you must do for yourself, and you do it to yourself. The justification that we receive in Christ Jesus was a legal declaration by God of righteousness that he placed upon us. And yes, beloved, he did do that. And yet at the same time, he sanctified us to be holy. And we are charged with sanctifying ourselves as well. Pursue holiness. Pursue righteousness. Do the deeds of repentance. Justification is the legal declaration that leads to our sanctifying work. It leads to increasingly holy living. That is our responsibility. It is our responsibility to live for Christ. It is our responsibility to obey the commands of Christ. It is our responsibility to do these things because why? Christ empowers us to do that. He has given us everything that we need to be strengthened so that we can put on the breastplate of righteousness and live lives that glorify God. Live lives that are holy and righteous, that are set apart. Live lives that honor him. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. He says, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's our boast. We live for Christ. We live to glorify Christ. And that is our breastplate of righteousness. John, in 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, says, My little children, I am writing these things to you, so that you may not sin, if anyone sins, we have an advocate in with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. We are putting on Christ and his righteousness. We don't have a righteousness of our own, derived from ourselves. We have Christ's righteousness placed upon us, given to us, that we need to appropriate, that we need to use, that we need to live to glorify God. We have a third piece of armor that we're given, and it is a pair of sandals of the gospel of peace. Why sandals? Why, what, what is the point of sandals? When we think of sandals, they're smooth bottom, flip-flops, or stuff that we wear to the beach, and we want to kick them off as soon as possible. Not for the Roman soldier. These kinds of sandals are the kind of sandals that would have spikes in the bottom of them that would give them a sure footing and a solid traction so that they could stand their ground in the onslaught of the enemy, that they would not give way. And when they hit rough ground, they would have a sure footing so that they could continue to march forward. These are sandals that were also woven up the shin to about the knee that also gave their ankles a little bit of support. These kinds of sandals are sandals that would definitely allow that soldier to have a firm footing on whatever soil he was on so that he could fight the good fight, that he could stand firm. Literally, this this in the Greek could be translated having shod yourselves as to the feet in readiness of the gospel of peace. The sense then is be ready with eager courage that is due to the gospel, which fills us with the peace of God. The gospel fills us with the peace of God. Paul in Romans 5, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Do you have peace through God? Do you have peace with God? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have peace with God, that you are reconciled to God, that you have the ability to know that when you die, you will see him face to face in glory and glorify him and worship him and enjoy him forever. That is why we were made. We were made by God for that kind of a relationship. We were made by God as image bearers of him so that we would reflect him to the waiting world. We were made by God to proclaim the gospel of peace. We were made by God to have an amazing relationship with our creator. And yet our federal head, Adam, our representative, failed that test. He chose poorly. He had the perfect opportunity to choose wisely, and he didn't. And instead plunged us into sin, and we inherited Adam's sin as a result. We have all been plunged into sin. What does Paul say in Romans? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. God has given us a bridge across the gap, and that is Christ. Paul writes more in Ephesians 5. He says, well, we were still helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. I love that. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died to reconcile you to your creator. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Sinners store up wrath for the day of wrath. And when God pours out his wrath on those sinners in judgment, they will not, they will not say, I didn't deserve this. When they stand before a holy God in their sin, they will understand what it is that they deserve. A holy God is storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Sinners outside of the fellowship of Christ are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath. Paul continues, if we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, But we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. If you have not been reconciled to God, if you have not called on Christ as Lord and Savior, do that today. Do that here and now. Know that Christ has died for you to reconcile you to God. Don't continue storing up wrath for yourself. Believer, preach the gospel to yourself. Expose sin. Kill sin. And then express that glorious gospel to the world. And let the world know what the gospel has done for you in reconciling you to God. That is the gospel of peace. Well, Paul has shown us these three, these three pieces of armor that we've put on before We enter the fray of battle before we stand firm. Now we have three more pieces to look at that we regularly must actively pick up and use. Pick up and use in order to stand firm against the spiritual forces of wickedness. The first one that we must actively pick up and utilize is the shield of faith. The shield of faith. What kind of shield is Paul talking about here? There were several different kinds of shields for the Roman hoplite warrior, for the Roman uh, soldier. 
the kind of shield that ta- is ta- being talked about here is a full body shield. It's probably about four feet tall, two and a half feet wide. It was made from pressing two pieces of thin wood together, gluing them together, and making it extra sturdy and firm. It would probably be covered in leather, and that leather would be tanned, and it would be rubbed with oil. It would be rubbed so that it would be something that would deflect the blows of a sword or a spear or an arrow or a dart. It would, around the edges of it, have brass to keep it together. And then in the middle of it would have an iron boss that would be something that a a soldier could use to push into an enemy that would cause the enemy to maybe hit him in the chest and back him up. This kind of uh, shield is the kind of a shield that a soldier could get behind that would protect him from the onslaught of arrows coming at the front. He could raise it up, or the soldier behind him could put his shield over him, and together they would be protected from the onslaught of arrows coming down on them from above. These shields that these Roman soldiers used were amazing in their defense. Paul here is describing a heavily armed warrior, well furnished for the defense. And with this single shield, the soldier would have protection from the rain of arrows, from spears, from javelins, from darts. Oftentimes, in between the the wood where it was glued together, they would put inside of there a, a thin sheet of metal before they glued it all together. Again, making it fireproof almost, so it wouldn't burn. It was covered with leather, like I said. They could soak that leather in water. And when an arrow stuck to the wet leather, what would happen to it? It would just extinguish the flaming arrow. Flaming arrows were famous in ancient war because they could cover it with pitch, they could light it on fire, they could shoot into an enemy's camp and do incredible destruction with that fire. These shields were designed to withstand all of that. All of it. Those flaming arrows are from Satan. They are temptations. They are trials. Maybe even tests. The temptations come suddenly and unexpectedly. They pierce, they penetrate, they torment the soul. And sometimes they even set it on fire. Here, the burning arrows depict in highly metaphorical language every kind of attack launched by the devil and his hosts against the people of God. Are you being attacked right now? Do you feel like you are just being pummeled by arrows from every side? Pick up, take up the shield of faith. Take up the faith in Christ as a protection from those errors. Your protection is in Christ alone. He is the object of our faith. He is the subject of our faith. He is all of our faith. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him. There's that word. Stand against. Stand against him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You're not the only one going through this. There are others who have gone through it before you, who will go through it after you, who are maybe even going through it at the same time as you. Your faith will be strengthened knowing that there are others of like-mindedness that are going through these trials together with you. Take up that shield. Use it well to protect yourself from all of these darts, from all of these arrows, from all of these flaming darts. The psalmist who wrote Psalm 119 says this, You are my hiding place, talking to the Lord. You are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. 
Christ is our hiding place. Christ is our shield. It is our faith in him that protects us from those trials, from those temptations. We need to take every thought captive in Christ. We cannot allow those thoughts to be developed into actions. We look to Christ. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Every word of God is tested. He is our shield for those who take refuge in him. When you are in a temptation, when you are in the throes of a trial, when you are being tested as to, the, as to your faith, where do you turn? Do you turn inward and look to yourself for the strength to get through it? Or do you turn to the only source of faith that we have, the only source of power that we have, the only source of strength that we have, the Word of God? When you fall and you fail that temptation and you succumb again to that besetting sin, where do you go? Do you run and hide like Adam and Eve did in the garden? Cover yourself with an apron of fig leaves and try and get away from God? Or do you turn to Scripture, confess your sin, repent, and believe in the gospel? We know that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from every unrighteousness. That is the faith that we have in the Word of God. Belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, Sandals of the gospel, shield of faith. Number five, helmet of salvation. Literally, the word in the Greek means around the head. That's literally what the word means. This was an object that was made probably most likely of leather, maybe had some attachments to it, was embossed with maybe copper or bronze, um, and strengthened and ornamented with other metallic plates um, that was then crested with a plume to identify what army you were in. It is our present salvation. Salvation itself forms the helmet that goes on our head. Not the hope of salvation, the reality of salvation. Christ has purchased his church with his blood for his glory. It is an actual salvation. It is not a potential salvation. Earlier in the letter, salvation was used to summarize what God has already accomplished for believers. This present aspect of salvation is emphatically stressed. Not to suggest that salvation is wholly realized or fully realized, but to let us know that salvation is ours in Christ. I love what the hymn writer wrote. Samuel Stone, the church's one foundation, is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by spirit and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Elect from every nation and one or all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. That is the salvation that we wear as a helmet, that we constantly must meditate on, that we constantly must think about, that we constantly need to understand. The writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is our all in all. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is the helmet of salvation that we need to appropriate every single day of our lives. How much time do you spend meditating on Christ? How much time do you think about 
what Christ has done for you in salvation, in shedding his blood, in being buried, in taking beatings, and then raising again in the third day. And not only that, but ascending to heaven to sit at the right hand of God so that he could intercede for us regularly. Christ's ongoing intercession, I would submit to you, may be a greater work of salvation than the cross. As great as the cross was in securing our salvation, it is his ongoing mediatorial work for the last 2,000 years that we are blessed by on a daily basis. Do you think about that? Do you meditate on that? Christ is our around-the-head salvation, our helmet of salvation. And lastly, number six, the sixth piece of armor, the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. A lot of people want to take this and mystify it and, and make it a metaphor and make it an allegory, and they want to, to hijack the sword of the Spirit, so to speak. And use it for what it is not intended to be used for. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Paul tells us clearly what it is. It is the Word of God. This particular type of sword is a short sword. Short, double-edged sword. And I was going to say, do we see, is the warrior's... Oh, yeah, right up there, the warrior sign. It looks like one of those. Short little sword, double-edged, two blades, with a hilt... That could be used for thrusting and for parrying blows. It's both offensive and defensive. The sword is given by the Spirit. And it is the written word of God. Again, the writer of Hebrews. And you know this verse. In Hebrews 4, tells us that the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is no creature hidden from its sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Beloved, the word of God is the sword of the spirit. There is nothing greater in our arsenal than the word of God. All authority was in the Word of God. When Christ was in the desert being tempted by the devil, what did he do? He quoted the Word of God. And even when the devil misquoted and misused God's Word against Christ, what did Jesus do? He used the Word of God. He parried the blows of the devil with the Word of God. The Word that is sure, that we have in English. How blessed are we to sit here and have this word in the New American Standard Translation, the English Standard Version Translation, the New International Version Translation, the New King James Version, the King James Version. How many English versions do we have? How blessed are we to have the Bible in English that we may understand it, that we may appropriate it, that we may use it, that we may meditate on it, memorize it, and use it to defend ourselves. How many people don't have this word in their language? What are we doing about that? The sword of the Spirit is the word of God. We have three pieces of armor that we've already put on, that we've already taken up, Once and for all in the past, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the sandals of the gospel of peace. We have three more pieces that need to be actively taken up and put on and utilized regularly throughout the entire duration of the battle and applied and readjusted depending on the attacks of the devil in order to be used properly. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword given by the Spirit, namely, the Word of God. Well, Paul tells us that there is a third resource at our disposal that we can use in this fight to stand firm. And that third resource is prayer. Prayer to stand firm. And we see this in verses 18 to 20. This is our third resource for victory. Be strengthened, take up the armor of God, and 
pray. Pray is what is admonished here. Pray with all prayer. Pray at all times in the Spirit. Pray. It is the steadfastness of the Spirit of these warriors in their entire battle. This command to pray literally carries with it the same idea that is expressed by the command to stand then in verse 14. It is prayer. It is to make prayer. It is to pray for. It is to offer prayer to. It is to pray at its most basic level. The word here used is the most comprehensive word for prayer used in the New Testament. It denotes or signifies prayer in general and may be used without further qualification. Beloved, when I say to pray, you know what that means. It means to pray. It means to talk to God. This great requirement of standing ready for the combat can be made good only when prayer Constant, earnest, spiritual prayer is added to the careful equipment with all the parts of the panoply, with all the parts of the armor. There are four ways in which the believer should pray. Four ways to pray. Number one, with all prayer and petition. With all prayer and petition. This answers the question, what kind of prayer, Paul? You are telling me to pray, but what what kind of prayer am I supposed to pray? With all prayer and all petition. This is all kinds of prayer and petition. These are prayers in season and out of season. These are prayers when you're healthy spiritually and sick spiritually. These are prayers that are shotgun prayers needed for the moment in time, like Nehemiah before the king. These are the kinds of prayers that you can write out and meditate on like David did in the Psalms. These are the kinds of silent prayers that are prayed alone. These are intense prayers prayed in the solitude of a garden, dripping blood like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. These are prayers that are vocal, prayed in a group setting, like Peter in the room with 120 souls, about who to choose to replace Judas. These are all kinds of prayers. Well, when, Paul? At all times. That's number two. The second way in which we must pray is at all times. The time could, could be to pray habitually, on all kinds of occasions, without ceasing, or... Don't forget about the wicked day in the context of the battle. These are all kinds of times. There is not one perfect time to pray. Rather, pray all the time. Just have a continual attitude and aspect of prayer as an ongoing part of who you are. On every occasion, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, pray. I remember hearing about a young man who's not so young anymore, but when he would go to fast food restaurants with friends, one of the things that he liked to do was to pray for the meal. And if you ever heard this man pray with his booming voice, you knew that that entire restaurant heard him pray for that fast food meal. He took every occasion to pray. Do we do the same thing? Do we pray on all kinds of occasions, habitually, without ceasing, daily, mindfully, lifting up our prayers to God on a regular basis? Well, thirdly, we pray with all perseverance. With all perseverance. This is answering the question, how are we to be involved in prayer? How are we to be involved in prayer? We need to pray with perseverance. We need to pray with steadfast endurance. We need to pray that we not stop praying until we have gotten the answer that we need. We ask, we seek, 
we knock, we continually ask, we continually seek, we continually knock at the door of the throne room of God as we pray and ask God for his will to be done. Don't give up. You will get an answer. It could be yes. God will give you what you're praying for. It could also be no, because that's not my will for you. Or it could be wait and keep praying. But keep praying. One of the commentaries I read talked about a man who had been praying for his brother, for his salvation for over 30 years. 30 years praying for the salvation of his brother. This man was a pastor, wrote commentaries, studied the Greek, understands it. I mean, this man persevered in prayer. And one weekend, they were away together in a cabin in the woods, enjoying vacation together. And this man and his wife went to pray. And then afterwards, he went to talk to his brother and said, I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about the gospel. And this man's brother said, yeah, me too. I need to hear more. They went into a different room. They continued to talk about the gospel. And when he came out, he had received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. 30 years of persistent prayer. Beloved, do we pray like that for each other? Do we pray for our friends, our unsaved co-workers, our unsaved family members, for, for their salvation? Are we on our knees in battle for them before the throne room of God? Ask, seek, knock. Pray with perseverance. Persistently pray. And fourthly, who are we to be praying for? We are to be praying for people. We are to be praying for people. And there are three different groups of people that Paul tells us to pray for. The first group is all the saints. Prayer for all the saints. Do we pray for all the saints or do we just pray for the saints that we like? Or the saints that we know? Or the saints that are close to us? Take out the directory, and pray through the directory. But I don't know that person. That's great, because I'm going to give you an idea of how to pray for that person at the end. Pray for all the saints. We see this kind of prayer all the time in the gospel. Paul asking the church to pray for himself and pray for all the saints. Watching, waiting, making sure to ask God for his mercy and grace on the lives of all the saints. Second group of of people to pray for are leaders and teachers. We see that in verse 19. Pray on my behalf. Paul being a preacher of the gospel. And we need to pray for those who teach the truth and do it boldly. Look at what Paul asks for. He says, pray that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel. He wants intercessory prayer on his behalf so that he would be bold in the proclamation of the gospel. But wait a minute. Didn't Paul go everywhere and proclaim with boldness the gospel? Yes, he did. And he did it because of the prayer of the saints. Because God listened to their prayers. He granted their requests. He gave Paul the boldness that he needed to go and preach the gospel. Pray for your leaders, for your teachers, who teach the truth, that they would be able to do it boldly. And then third. The third group to pray for is for all of those who proclaim the gospel. Evangelists. Preachers, even radio personalities in Christian ministries. Verse 20. Pray on my behalf, for which I am an ambassador. I am an ambassador in chains on behalf of the gospel, 
that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Where was Paul when he wrote this letter? He was in prison. He was chained to two Roman guards, one on each side of him. Those Roman guards had to be chained to him every day for 12 hours. Two Roman guards per day, per shift, 12-hour shift. Four Roman guards per day, seven days a week. 28 different soldiers per month, roughly. That would be potentially um, 28 different soldiers times four weeks in a month. Roughly 112 to 120 different soldiers. What do you think they were hearing when they were with Paul in that prison cell for 12 hours? Well, Paul's letter to Philippian, to the Philippian church, tells us. Philippians 1. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul is still in prison here. But his circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. That's the kind of prayer that Paul longs for. Do we pray that way for other believers who are out there sharing the gospel? Do we pray for our missionaries that way? Do we pray for Pastor Paul over at the Bridge Bible Fellowship that way? Pastor George Von Sangu at Faith Bible Church. John MacArthur at Grace Community Church. And the list goes on. Do we pray for them? Paul wants every believer to know that the fourfold alls in this verse pray at all times with all prayer and supplication, with all perseverance and making supplication for all the saints underscores in a most emphatic way the significance which the apostle gives such mutual intercession in the midst of battle. That is the kind of prayer that strengthens for the battle so that we might stand firm. So looking back at this passage, thinking through all of these things, Paul wants every believer to know that God has supplied everything we need for living victoriously against the enemy. Be strengthened with the strength that God supplies in his mighty strength. Be outfitted with the full armor of God that he has provided for the battle. Take it up, put it on, keep it on, and keep taking it up. And be prayerful. So what can we do in a very practical way that would incorporate all of these resources? What can we do? In a word, I would submit to you, pray. In prayer, we are strengthened with the strength of God's might. In prayer, we are outfitted with the armor that God provides. And in prayer, we're prayerful. We are dependent on the sovereign word of God. We are dependent on the sovereign hand of God. We are dependent on the sovereign God of the universe for our requests. What would have happened if believers had been fighting this way for Hank Hanegraaff? What would have happened? The battle is real. The battle is being fought right now. How will you pray for Patrick in light of this. How will you pray for me and Tim and the other men who are leading Christ Bible Church? How will you pray for the women who serve so faithfully meeting the needs of the body of Christ Bible Church? How do we pray for the church in general? How do we pray specifically for Christ Bible Church? I want to run through 12 suggestions. Don't worry to try to write down all 12, because I'm going to put this in a newsletter also. We'll we'll get this out to you in the newsletter this week. This comes from Jeff Kirkland, from his blog. And I thought these 12 suggestions were just too good to pass up. Number one, pray for marriages to be holy. Pray for husbands and wives to fulfill 
and pursue their God-given roles as laid out in Scripture. Pray for marriages to be godly representations of the gospel of Christ. Pray for set-apart, otherworldly, heavenly-minded marriages at, at this church. Number two, pray for singles to be faithful that they earnestly seek God in intercessory prayer for, for singles to obey what God or what Paul says of them in 1 Corinthians 7.35, to have undistracted devotion to the Lord. Pray that they would utilize their singleness for Christ's glory, to pursue the saints with zealous, I'm sorry, selfless zeal and with relentless passion. Thirdly, pray for widows to be disciples. Pray for the widows to pursue good works, to show hospitality, to serve the saints by selfless foot-washing service, to assist those in need, and to devote herself or himself to every good work. Number four, for retired people to be disciplined. Ask God on behalf of the retired men and women to live like Caleb with full strength and vigor for God, to take on great tasks and duties for Christ's sake, to emulate Anna, who worshipped constantly, fasted, prayed, and lived a life of gratitude to God, not grumbling and complaining. Pray for them to be busily disciplined and continually strengthened by God to do his work with untiring energy out of love for Christ. Fourth, or fifthly, for wives to be submissive to their own husbands. Seek God on behalf of the wives and young women to be submissive to their husbands, to be quiet as opposed to boisterous and self-focused to be gentle, obedient to authority, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, to not dishonor the Lord, but to adorn the doctrine of Christ in all respects. Pray for men, number six, to be humble servant leaders. Plead boldly and persistently with God to raise men and cultivate in men a Christ-like emulation so as to be humble, gentle, and sacrificial leaders. Ask God for men to not be self-willed, but self-effacing and others-focused. Number seven, for children to be obedient. Pray for the young children to obey their parents in all things. Pray for the children to receive God's blessing and follow God's word as they grow in godly homes and hear God's word taught. Number eight, for for teens to be spirit-empowered. Appeal to God for young people to be David's. Young men devoted to God with hearts that follow him and set God before them continually. Pray for more Josephs. Young people fleeing from immorality in a very literal sense in an immoral world. Living with paramount integrity, trustworthiness, and love. Pray for young people to be like Jesus, totally about the Father's business in this present evil age in which we live. Nine, pray for babies to become missionaries. Seek the Lord boldly and open your mouth wide to the God who is able to do far more abundantly beyond what you think or imagine to raise up and grow the smallest of nursing babies to be missionaries for Christ's work and service. Pray for men with an open map and an open Bible who believe God's sovereignty and go with spirit-empowered and evangelistic zeal to preach the gospel to the rough, the savages, the unreached, and unengaged peoples of the world. Amaze us. Amaze us. God, amaze us for your glory. Two more. Number 10. I said 12, didn't I? I meant 11. Number 10. For shut-ins to rest in Christ. Come to the throne of grace for those who are homebound. Maybe there are elderly men and women who aren't able to leave their homes. Maybe there are people in the final stages of cancer or terminal illness. Seek the Lord on their behalf that they would rest in Christ and not be bitter or angry or resentful or pessimistic. Pray that those who find themselves confined to the home would rest in Christ and bathe in Scripture and reflect on and proclaim God's faithfulness. And lastly, pray for families to be little churches of worship. Plead earnestly that every home would be, as it were, a little church, earnestly and consistently about the worship of God in the home, led by the Father with the families gathered together to read the words, sing God's praises, pray together, all for God's glory. Pray for the homes to be worship gatherings where God's blessing would rest upon those homes and where families would prepare in the homes for worship corporately with God's people. I think if we did these things, we would be strengthened We would be outfitted with the armor that God provides, and we would continually be prayerful. Would you pray with me?
Oh, Lord, I bless, bless you and praise you so much that the issue of the battle between yourself and Satan has never been uncertain. We know that it will end in victory. Calvary broke the dragon's head. And we cannot contend with a vanquished foe who, with all his subtlety and strength, has already been overcome. When we feel the serpent at our heels, help us to remember him whose heel was bruised, but who, when bruised, broke the devil's head. Our souls, with inward joy, glorify the mighty conqueror, Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, heal us of any wounds received in the great conflict in which we are engaged. If we have gathered defilement, if our faith has suffered damage, if our hope is less than bright, if our love is not fervent, if some creature comfort occupies our heart, if our souls sink under the pressure of the fight, please forgive us and strengthen us. O oh Lord, your every promise is a balm to us. Every touch is life to us. We ask that you would draw near to us, your weary warriors. Refresh us, that we would rise again to fight the battle and never tire until our enemy is completely defeated. Give us such fellowship with you that we will defy Satan. We will defy unbelief, the flesh, the world, with delight that comes not from a creature, but from your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, Him who any creature cannot ruin. Give us a long, deep drink from the eternal fountain that lies in your immutable, everlasting love and decree. Then we know that your hand will be ours and that our hand will never weaken. Our feet will never stumble. Our sword will never rust. Our shield will never fall apart. Our helmet will not shatter. Our breastplate will never fail. Our belt will not come undone, as our strength lies in the power of your might. Amen.